Well, I have, a, I have an annual joke that I like to tell. At least it's a, a joke for me. And uh, it's that we have three major Sundays on the church calendar. And they are Christmas, Easter, and the Sunday we ask for your money. And every year around this time, we come to a, a time where we have actually several Sundays where we don't just ask for your money, where we explain why it is that we're going to ask for your Monday money. Now, before you get up and go running out, it's, it's not going to be exactly like you, you maybe have felt at, at other churches or experienced because I am not going to beg you to give. I'll be honest, I've had some people talk to me recently about trying to explain their giving patterns. I don't know what you give to the church or what you give to other organizations. And let me just tell you this and disambiguate in case you were worried about it, because some people apparently are. I don't care. I mean, of course, like, my salary does depend on, the, on our church bringing enough revenue in in order to pay the bills. I would like to keep the lights on. I would like for the heat to eventually work. It does it now because it's not really hooked up, but we're working on it, right? I, I, I like those things, but those are not my primary concern. I would like to believe that whether or not I was paid for it, I would continue to do what I'm doing. And, and, and beyond that, I don't want what you give or don't give to impact the way that I talk to you or the way that we minister to you, and it won't. So I, I don't know what you give, and, and you, won't, you won't, if you come here on the regular, you'll notice that we don't spend a lot of time begging you to give. We don't throw up and talk a lot about financial, you know, realities, because I, I don't want to get lost off of the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want that to be the main thing. And so we're going to trust that God's going to continue to give, God is going to continue to provide, and, and that you're going to continue to give and be faithful in that way so that we can continue to do what we're doing the way that we're doing it. But we do at times have to talk about the necessity of giving. It is a part of, of what God talks about. Did you know that Jesus talks more about your money and how you use it in the Gospels than he talks about anything else? Go ahead and look through it. Like Jesus is concerned with wealth, with money, and how we manage it, and what we do as a result of it is a pretty big deal to Jesus. And it all comes down to the same thing, like how that money then... Um, plays into how we treat other people and how we serve other people or how we don't and how we serve ourselves. And I'll be honest with you, I, I really, as I came to the, the stewardship campaign for this year and talking about giving and, and why it's important, I really struggled with exactly what to do. I try to make it creative. I try to make it less abrasive and offensive because and, I know people are all sensitive about that. Um, but and, and some years I do pretty good, but I'll be honest, coming into this week, I had no idea how we were going to do this. And my steward, like you notice, we don't have a graphic for it this year because my stewardship campaign for this year is simply titled Giving. So that's what we're going to talk about. But we're going to talk about it maybe in, in a different way than what we've done in the past. And so today, as we start this stewardship campaign, as we talk about the, the, the crucial nature of giving and us contributing to the work of God on, on the planet, we're actually not going to talk about what we give at all. Instead, we're going to talk about with the example from which we are to draw, that is to then determine how we are to live and give of our own lives. We're going to talk about the divine example of God. We're going to talk about the, the excessive 
unreasonable generosity of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we're going we're gonna to look at, at, at what might seem like a very unlikely passage to start a stewardship or giving series. We're going to start with John 3, 16. Without a doubt, the most well-known and often quoted scripture in the Bible. It was the first verse that I memorized as a child. And truthfully, when I quote it today, I struggle. It's somewhere between King James and NIV because that's what I learned it in. And, and so that was the, it's stuck in, in it, it, it's burned into my mind. While there might be various uh, variations of how the wording is in our own minds, I'm pr- pretty certain that most of us, if put on the spot, could give the gist of the text. A general idea of what it says. It is what commentator and Bible scholar, the late William Barclay called, quote, everybody's text. While we all have different texts of the Bible, we like more than most, like many others, carry the same meaning and weight. Few passages carry the same significance for us, like John 3.16. We could all rightly call this what we used to call at our small Christian school, our, we could call this our life verse, because it is the verse that proclaims to us the key to life here and forevermore. It proclaims for us the gateway into right relationship with God by laying the foundation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as seen in the giving nature of our God. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn with me to John 3.16. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. John 3.16 and 17, and I am reading in the newest NIV translation. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. As we turn our attention to this most important of texts, let us go to the Lord and ask that he would open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears, that we might hear from him the truth that he has for us today. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for the great love with which you have loved us and with which you continue to love us. I thank you for the ways that your spirit continues to provide for us in the ways that we need in our lives. God, I pray that you would challenge us and that you would comfort us this morning as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage starts with, with those words that, that we all need to hear and to remember in a couple of different ways, right? Like the, it starts with those, those most famous of words, for God so loved the world. And there's some significance in that. We, we like to, to, to distill it down to the things that apply to us and that are most significant. For God so loved me. But it, 
And while you are included in it, it's not just you. Brief aside, because this isn't my notes, but it feels necessary to, to correct a, a wrong that is often propagated in the church. We like to say that if you were the only person on earth, that God would still have come and died for you. But he didn't. I mean, that makes the gospel about me. Just me. That the gospel is mine. And I, you need to know that this is, a, this is a, a very significant Western thing. This has not been the way that the gospel was perceived throughout history. And it, it does create problems when we distill the gospel down to what is in it for me. That's true. And we need to accept that. And I don't mean to make light of that. But who did God so love? Someone, please answer me. What does the text say? The world. Are you the world? No. You're part of it. You're part of it. But you are not the world. Making that statement and thinking that way, if you were the only person, well, that's foolishness because you aren't the only person in the world. And significantly enough, if you were, you were the only person that screwed it up. Who wants to carry that weight? For God so loved the world. Let's not make less of God's love than what it is. The fact that God so loved the world doesn't make less love for me. It makes more love for me. If God loves all the sinners in the world, there's hope. There's hope for this sinner. I can't cancel it out. If, if God loved everybody so much that he sent his son, then I'm included. Because surely my sins don't meet, reach up to the standards of the aggregate of all the sins of all of humanity throughout all of time. I don't care how significant your sins are. Your sins aren't worse than everybody else's combined. But God so loved the world. And we need to understand this. We need to stop making God's love less and understand that it is more than we could ask or imagine God so loved, and this is what's important for us to realize in this line right here, that God so loved because God is love. God so loved because God is love. The starting point of our salvation is God's unconditional and expansive love. Not our sin. The starting point of our salvation is is God's unconditional and expansive love, not our sin. It, I thought about this this week, and I thought about whether or not I wanted to, to share or talk about this, but I feel it's necessary. Because this is where the Apostle John starts, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He doesn't start by saying, you were such terrible sinners that God had to send his son. That's not what it says. God is not under duress. He's not under pressure to send his son. He sends his son because he chose to send his son. And he chose to send his son because God so loved. And God so loved because God is love. I wear this bracelet on my wrist, and, and I love it, and I'm not trying to demean this. Um, so understand that what I'm going to say is going to be distinctly negative, but I love the wordless book, okay? Everybody understand that? Caveat. So I have this bracelet on, and, and I will be honest, I've worn one since I was in college, and it has saved my life more times than I can, I can tell you. Because even as a pastor, when I get into that moment and I have to share the gospel with someone, I, 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 I kind of go blank. 
I was talking to Tim Stair, and Tim is the, the new guitarist. We're glad to have you, buddy. And, and I was talking to him about how sometimes when I'm playing guitar, if, if someone will request a song on the fly, I go blank. I'm not one of those, I have to have the music or else I can't remember it. And, and it may be just my weak mind, but it is what it is. When, I, when the pressure turns on, I've got to have something in front of me. I have really detailed notes here, and that's what I have to follow because I'm not good at just doing things on the fly. And so I've got this bracelet on my wrist to remind me of the story of the gospel. I actually got a job one time. My first job I got because I was sitting in an interview, and the deacons, I go through the interview. I killed it. Killed it. Great interview. Get to the end, and one of the deacons goes, oh, before, before we conclude this meeting, if I was a teenager, how would you lead me to Christ? And I was like, uh, but I looked down at my wrist, and there was that bracelet. So I, I wear this bracelet, and I use it often. I love it, right? But I, I have somewhat of a philosophical problem with what it theologically tells us about the gospel. Because if you look at this bracelet or the one with the beads, the starting point is normally a dark color. It's black. You know what black stands for in the wordless book? Death. And we are, we are all, for the wages of sin is death. And the Bible teaches us that we are all sinners and that we will die one day. And that without the love of Jesus, we will be cursed forever to hell. I got to be honest, like from a speaker standpoint, that works. Like that slaps right there. Like that's a good storyline because you start with the problem and you move people towards the solution. But that's not where the gospel starts in the gospel. We, we start, ironically, when we talk about the eternal life, we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't start with good news. We start with bad news. Congratulations, you're a hopeless sinner. And to compound the issue of your sin, if you don't do something and you can do nothing, you will spend forever frying in hell. That's not good news. Like, that's really bad news. But that's where we start, the unavoidability of death. Nothing says God so loves you and has a glorious plan for your life like the threat of death and eternal damnation. But it's often where we start. In John 3, though, we read what may well be the first formal presentation of the gospel message as we know it. And what's interesting is this formal presentation of the gospel comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Let's look back a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning of, of John chapter 3. And it says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What's kind of interesting there, because Jesus answers a question that it doesn't really seem that Nicodemus is asking, right? You got to wonder, like sometimes when Jesus says things, like where is Jesus coming from with this? Like, it seems like he's coming out of left field, but Jesus tells him, hey, look, you, you can't get into heaven. You can't see what God is doing or be a part of it unless you are born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of eternal things, of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. What's interesting to me about this text is Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus isn't asking. And then Nicodemus asks a question and Jesus kind of sort of answers it. But he, but he does so with, with an Old Testament scripture. But I want us to notice something. I want us to notice in this text where Jesus begins his story of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. He doesn't start with death, right? What does he start with? What does he start with? Birth. He doesn't start with end of life and the promise of death. He starts with birth and the promise of new life. It's interesting. He doesn't start with the promise or threat of punishment, but the hope and the promise of restoration and new life through God's gracious love. Don't misunderstand me here. Both are part of the story of salvation. They're, they're different sides of the same coin. The threat of death and hell is a reality that we have to deal with, that we all are sinners, and that we are all on our way to hell without the grace and love of Jesus Christ. That is a reality that we ought not avoid. But the other side of the coin is equally and of greater importance because it is what really has the power. And that is that God so loved and that God, because he's so loved, provides a means of salvation, the only means of salvation, so that true life may be experienced both now and for eternity. Both are important. But love is the starting point, not God's judgment. God's love precedes the salvific work of Christ on the cross and the faith to accept the grace of God. It is where both Jesus and the Apostle John start. Now, you may look at your text, and, and we need to understand that the red letters did not actually appear in our Bibles in the original Greek text. As a matter of fact, there aren't quotation marks either, so we kind of have to guess whether these are truly red letters or they are supposed to be black letters. And I appreciate them, but, but it is believed by most scholars today that John 3, 16 and 17 are not actually the words of Jesus, but the words of John explaining what Jesus has just said. And it makes sense because John essentially copies what Jesus just said in verse 14 and 15 when he gets into 16. 
I mean, look at the verse. In verse 15 it says, or 14 and 15 it says, The Son of Man, or just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Then it repeats itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the phraseology is the same. And so it would make sense that John is explaining the confusing thing that Jesus just said to this scholar. But it is interesting to me that they double down on the concept that God so loved, so God gave. God is, God so loved because God is love. God is what the biblical writers would have termed agape love. As been explained by countless preachers before me in countless places, including myself, there were several different Greek words used to talk about love in ancient Greek. And I actually hate when preachers do this because agape is like the only word that most preachers know. So I tend to avoid it. But I found an article this, this week that was of great interest concerning this. See, there are three, there are actually four or five, actually I think seven different words that are used at Times for Love, but four primary ones, three that, that people normally focus on, and I'll follow the general trend and we'll focus on the three that are most common. They are eros, philia, and agape. Now eros is, is the actual Greek god of, of lust and sex. And so the love eros actually refers to that. It, 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 it brings to mind a love that is about desire, about passion. It communicates an overwhelming desire to have and to take what one wants. You know what's interesting is the word had become so debased by the use in Roman culture that at the time of the writing of the Bible, the New Testament authors didn't even touch it. And in broader Greek culture, the word had become a dirty word. She didn't use that word. It's not that, it's not that sex was a dirty thing, which is the, 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 the knee-jerk reaction we often make to, to words about love that have to do with sexual inference. But the problem was the way the Romans were using it. We think that our culture is sexually debased. We cannot hold a candle to what the Romans were doing and what they held up as being normative. I mean, Americans that, that seem to look the other way and, and sex is sex is sex, it's whatever, it's not a big deal and put it in shows and movies. and whatever. The Romans would be like, here, hold my soda. They were horrible. So much so that the New Testament writers didn't even put the word in their writings. So eros. The second word is philia. Philia was a, a warm, kind affection of the heart, usually shared between family or close friends. There's another word, it's sturgia, and that, that word was, was also about family, and those two words are kind of closely aligned, and sturgia generally focused actually on family, and philia focused more on friendship. But both were used kind of interchangeably at times. It is often, philia is often referred to in our context as brotherly love. We all know that the, the city Philadelphia is known as the city of, brother, of brotherly love. That's because in Greek, Philadelphia literally means city of brotherly love or brotherly love, city of, more accurately. Philia was a 
reciprocal love. Meaning, I love you and you love me. There is what we would call a give and take relationship involved. That I'm giving and you're taking, you're giving and I'm taking. Eros is a love that takes. Philia is, and Sturgia are loves that give and take. Well, then that brings us to agape. Which is, again, an overplayed word in, in pastoral circles. But the reason that it's overplayed in pastoral circles is because it is so prolific and ubiquitous in the New Testament. It is everywhere. Now, you know what's really interesting about that? Is that if you were a Greek scholar, or I was a Greek scholar, which I am not, you would read all of these extra-biblical Greek texts. And you know what's interesting about that? Is the word agape almost never shows up. Because the word agape in the first century was kind of a blah word for love. It, it really wasn't a, a word that carried deep meaning. It was just a general word for love. It didn't have a lot of, of definition to it. It just was eh. It was there. But here in the Bible, we see it everywhere. In fact, the New Testament writers use the word agape with greater frequency than any of the other words about love combined. John himself, the Apostle John that wrote the, the, the book of John and the, the three Johns and Revelation, John used the word more than 50 times in his writings. Each of the other words refers to friends, families, or lovers. They all describe love that takes as well as giving at times. And, and, but but they, they have a taking connotation. The biblical writers needed a different word, as particularly as, as they were referring to God. And so the biblical writers, by their prolific use of the word agape, imbued the word, they gave to the word agape a new life. Their usage provides new, focused understanding on the love of God. They're trying to describe something that was indescribable and previously undescribed. So what's interesting is they take the most bland, unused word about love. They attach that to God. And God then becomes the definition of this undefinable word. It's a love that does not give up. It's a love that does not end. It is a love that gives without expectation or condition. It is a love that seems otherworldly and unnatural because it is. It's a love that holds others in high regard and seeks to satisfy the need of others. And it provides a baseline understanding for God's driving motivation for his activity in the world, and the foundational expectation of how we as Christians should treat one another as a result. John goes a step further when he writes his letters, and in 1 John 4.8 and 4.16, John doubles down by saying that God is agape. God is love. His st statement is profoundly true in, in two different ways. One, that God's default and preferred mode of pursuing and dealing with humanity is unconditional compassion and grace. 
That is God's default. I will be honest with you, throughout my life as a student of the Bible, particularly early on, coming out of fundamentalist churches and more traditional Baptist background, I was incredibly uncomfortable with this. The concept that God is love. God is love. It's what I used to call sloppy agape. That God loves you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. But that's exactly what the Bible says. We don't like that. We want to focus, we want a God that makes us feel other. We want a God that makes us feel better. We want a, a God that, that lifts us out of the mire and, and dusts us off so that we can be prettier and, and, and more righteous than everybody else. And that's just not how it works. God joins us in the mud. This is our God, a God that is so loving, according to Romans, that while we were his enemies, he still loved us. We see that in the Gospels, a God that as he is hanging on the cross and they are putting nails through his hands and his feet, says, God, Father, forgive them. This is the love of God. It is exceptional. It is unreasonable. It is uncomfortable. But this is the love of God. And it is God's default mode of pursuing and dealing with humanity. God's desire is to demonstrate grace and love and compassion to all people first and foremost. Right? Does the Bible not say that his desire is that all would come to repentance that's his desire. His desire, God's desire is not to destroy everyone. It's not to damn everyone to hell. It's not to give people their just desserts. And as a matter of fact, it is exactly the opposite. It is to give, the, give people his great love and his, this mighty reward that they could not earn. This is the love of God. This is the generosity of our God. And also, not only is it the default and preferred mode of pursuing and dealing with humanity for God, in both the academic and practical sense, the word agape can only be understood in light of divine action towards humanity. If you look in any other textbook and you look at any other usage, you cannot get as robust an understanding of this word for love. As a matter of fact, you can get no understanding of the word for love without understanding who God is. God is literally agape. With God, there is no agape. We cannot understand it as we do now. That is amazing, is it not? That God's love is so great that they literally had to reframe a word to describe how amazing it is. Now maybe I'm just next level Bible nerd, but that pumps me up. I mean, I was pretty excited when I was in Bible college and they had to invent rules for me. That was pretty awesome. Not going to lie to you. Can you imagine them having to invent a new word for you? Like, we don't even know how to describe you. Let's just, let's just take a word and we're going we're gonna to reframe it. God is love. Therefore, God so loved. And we... All of us are the object of God's great affection. This is good news. This is the starting point of the gospel. That God so loved the world. Well, again, we talked about how there's this new word. And we've got to understand that God's love is most clearly demonstrated in all that he has given. God's love is most clearly demonstrated in all that he has given 
We immediately go to Jesus, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that, put a pin in that. We are going to get to Jesus, right? That is going to be the, the pinnacle of the peak, if you will. But the examples of God giving for the good of humanity are replete throughout the Bible. They are everywhere. Talk is cheap, is it not? It is easy to throw words around, to say, I love you. But, but unless we walk the talk, the words become hollow. To say God is love then, without God validating that and how God acts, you can't say that God is love if, unless God actually acts in loving ways. We see that throughout Scripture. God is not a God who just talks. God is, God, if God wrote it down, you can bank on the fact that he's going to follow through. For God so loved the world, back to John 3.16, that he, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? That's where it goes. As the passage builds, it starts, for God so loved the world, it lays the foundation. Well, for God so loved that, what did he do? He gave. He gave. We see that throughout the text of Scripture. We're going to try to jump through a few right quick here. If we turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 and, verses, and verse 25, or 24 to 25, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by humans' hands if, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Here in Acts, we see that God gives us everything. That, that, that it's not just these things that we have. It's not just this church building. It's not the pews that we're sitting in. But it is life. And every breath that we breathe is a gift from God. God gave that to you. Our very existence is a gift of God's grace. In Genesis chapter 1, all the way back at the beginning, verses 27, following it says, For God, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. We see that the, the, the image of God within us is a gift from God, that we have the imago Dei, the image of God, that above any other creature, aside from any other creature on the planet, that we alone were given this image of God as he breathed his spirit into us. So we have the spiritual gift by God, and then we also see that God gave us the plants for food in order that we might be provided for every bite of food we eat and enjoy. Every activity we pursue is a gift of God's creation for, in, and through us. Psalm 34 says that if we delight ourselves in God, that he will give us the desires of our heart. This is not the self-serving garbage that we also often re reduce it to, that God will give us whatever we want if we just turn ourselves over to him. 
If we delight ourselves in God, then what we desire is God. And this is even more amazing because God is saying, if you delight yourself in me, I'm going to give me to you. I'm going to make myself available. If you seek me, you will find me. I will give of myself to you. In Matthew chapter 7, it tells us this, and this is in actually all of the Gospels. Matthew 7 and following, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and those who seek find. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give them a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give them a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God gives us these good gifts when we ask of him what we need, when we come to him for, for his help and his assistance and his provision he gives to us. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God above. That temptation, sin, and death, those are all us. We earn and find those on our own, but God in his grace gives us love, restoration, and life. The fact is that we could spend all day just going through the scriptures and looking at different places where God gives different things to his people out of his abundant grace and love. And the greatest gift that God gives is his love. And here's the thing about true abiding love is it must be given. It cannot be taken. This love of God must be given. It cannot be taken. It must be offered and accepted by invitation, not by force. When we think about giving, and this is why I think it's so profoundly important for us to consider giving in light of this text, is that we cannot outgive God. Because everything that we give is ultimately a gift from his hands in the first place. And as we empty our pockets, God continues to fill them by his grace. God continues to give us the things that we need. It is impossible for us to outgive God. All that we are and all that we have are given to us by God through his grace and because of his great love. And that brings us to the greatest example of God's love. The greatest example of God's love and the most costly gift he gave is seen in the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 16 of John 3 again tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus is the one and only, and I actually like the King James Version better of the, than, than, the, than the English NIV version of this. That God gave his only begotten son. Jesus is the one and only son of God in at least two ways. One, first and foremost, he is the only human born by divine intervention and action. Meaning that, that without divine intervention and action, there is no conception. That's why the divine and the, the, the virgin birth is so important because Jesus is, in fact, the only begotten Son. We can be born of God, as Jesus encourages us, but we do through invitation and through adoption. Jesus is not born without God's activity. No, that, it's impossible without God's involvement. Adam and Eve were created. Each of us in the room were conceived through human effort. 
Only Jesus was begotten physically of God. Jesus did exist eternally, but we don't want to get lost in the weeds of Christology this morning. But the fact is that Christ's physical existence was an act of divine movement and intervention. He is the only begotten Son of God. But it goes beyond just the physical reality of God through Jesus. It goes to Jesus looking like his father. Now, Michaela is my daughter, right? We all know that. Michaela is my daughter. Michaela, come up here for a second, quickly. So, Michaela is my daughter. And if you look at Michaela this morning, she does not look like her father, right? Any of you that are here, I encourage you, if you don't know my daughter, Michaela, or my wife, Robin, come and look at the two of them, and you will see who she looks like. She is, as they would say, the spitting image of her mother. So much so that sometimes I will confuse the one for the other. If you call them on the phone, it's hard to tell which one you're talking to at times. Until they really start talking. Because while she looks like her mother, she is all daddy. This girl is her father inside, in all the best of ways and in all the worst of ways. But she looks like her father. She is her father's daughter. She may physically look like her mother. But if you talk to her and you work with her and you see what she's about and how she functions, she looks like her daddy. The Bible, that's what it's talking about. Jesus most likely looked a lot like Mary. No one was going to look at Jesus and physically say, you look like God. Right? No, no one confused Jesus for that. But you know what? As soon as Jesus began working and began doing what he did, you knew, that, you knew who that boy's daddy was. He looked like Mary, but he was all his father. That the quality and character, the content of who Jesus was and the way that he acted and functioned in the world was all his father. He was the only true, fully begotten son of his father in his content and character. And God gave his son Jesus by sending him from heaven to earth to live a human life and ultimately by sending him to the cross to pay the price for the sins of humanity. We see in verse 14 that Jesus knew what was coming because those were the words of Jesus. Jesus wasn't forced by the Father into this course of action. He knew what would ultimately come about and that he would give his life on a cross to purchase our pardon and eternal life. And he was for the plan. In John 19, we see that Jesus did give his life, that it wasn't taken from him, that he gave his spirit up. Jesus tells Pilate, hey, you have no power to take my life from me. You may think, Pilate, as the governing official for Rome, that you have some authority, but without my father and without my say-so, you have no power here. You can only take my life because I am willing to give it. Every aspect of the life of Christ and the death of Christ was an act of sacrificial grace and a demonstration of the love of God as he gave for us. And God spared no expense to make his salvation available to all, to make his love known. For God so loved that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God gave his son 
Jesus gave his life, all so that we could be given eternal life. The sacrificial death, according to verse 17 then, the sacrificial death of Jesus cancels our condemnation. That this is the only act of taking of God from us, is God takes the punishment for our sins. What a terrible deal! God takes our brokenness from us. As we offer it to him and gives back to us eternal life and salvation, the sacrificial death of Jesus cancels the condemnation we have earned. And John explains that the ray of sunshine in the very next verse in verse 18, that Christ didn't come to condemn or to carry out punishment, but as he rightly could have, but to give. And by believing in Christ, we receive the pardon that God gives and our condemnation is canceled. The sacrificial of death of Jesus also supplies the salvation and the life that we need. As the shirt and stickers so aptly say, Jesus saves. Jesus should have been the coming of the end of life, the end of days for humanity. He should have stood as the righteous judge to condemn us all for our continued and unmitigated failure and rebellion. Instead, Jesus took our condemnation in order to give us salvation. God is holy. That is absolutely true. But God's love satisfied his righteous wrath in order to make way for his amazing grace to be freely given. On the surface, John 3.16 seems like a really weird place to start. A series about stewardship and giving. But is it? Because it's a passage that so clearly shows us the, the giving and generous nature of our God. A God who was all in for the salvation of the world. A God who was all in for his purposes to be accomplished in your life and in mine and in the world at large. A God who was willing to give his life. And if, as, as the Bible itself says, if he was willing to give his son, is there then anything he wouldn't be willing to give? And the answer to that question is no. John 3.16 demonstrates the deep, deep love of God and the extravagant generosity that saturates his dealings with humanity through his great love. From beginning to end, the gospel and the whole of Scripture is about God giving and giving and giving some more in order to open up avenues for people to become his people and to live in right relationship with him, both for now and forevermore. And here's the truth, that this love is not just to be received, but as we are restored, this love is to be shared. That this is to be the defining feature of our lives, that the extravagant generosity that is seen in the love of God is to be seen in the way that we deal with one another. Yes, in our time, in our ministries, in our services, in our affections, but also with our resources. God doesn't just want from you a tenth of what you have. Which is one of the reasons that I don't like talking about giving because we want to know how much. You want to know the answer about how much God wants from you? Everything. He wants it all. 
One of the reasons I'm not just concerned about your money and how much you give, as important as it is, is that I don't just want your money. I want you to serve. I want you to be Sunday school teachers. I want you to be small group leaders. I want you to be greeters. I want you to play guitar on the stage. I want you to sing. I want you to be involved in in our outreaches to the community. And I'm going to tell you what. If you sat here this morning and thought, man, we are doing a lot of things to give right now. Buckle up, brothers and sisters, because it's coming. We're going to keep asking. And we're going to keep asking, and we're hoping to put more things on the calendar to keep asking so we can keep serving, so we keep keep showing the love of God, so that, that one day we have so many baptisms that, that my hands get crinkly from doing them all. That is my dream. We're going to, we're going to give candy to kids. And it seems frivolous, but it's important because that act of giving opens up avenues for us to give the message of Christ. We're going to give by going over to Brown Elementary School. We're going to give by going to other elementary schools if we can. And we're going to give. We're going to keep asking for you to give. We're going to do Thanksgiving baskets like we did last year. And last year we did like 250. This year I, I am going to ask you, and I'm just going to tell you right now, that it's going to come out here recently, very soon, that we're going to ask you to give and to participate in making 250 pumpkin pies to give people for Thanksgiving. We're going to work with the community to give. And I may not come to you and say, I need this much money, but we are asking you to give for the the functioning of the church. That's common sense, right? I can't ask you to give unless you're giving, so I can ask you to give. may seem like a bad deal for you, but hey, I didn't write the rules. But if you believe in this ministry and you believe in the truth of the gospel, our hope is that giving will not be a burden for you. That you'll understand, as we see in the Old Testament, that giving is a privilege. And that as we give, the word of God continues to go forth from this place. And giving is a part of us shining the light of the gospel. And we give not because we are obliged to give, but because God so loved and because God gave. I hope we're inspired to give. And I hope that God continues to work and move, and I know that he will in amazing ways as we faithfully come and offer of ourselves our time, our talents, and our treasures. And as we are exceptionally, exceedingly generous, that God will continue to be generous to us and that God will show up and do more than we ask or imagine. And the waters of baptism will flow, and the seats will continue to be full, but more importantly, the gates of heaven will be overrun with people coming in because the body of Christ at 505 Community Jive sought to give as God gave for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. May we share that life in the way that we give of our lives and the things that God has given us. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace and all that you have given to us. May we be conduits of your giving and grace. May you continue to work in and through us in amazing ways. And God, we will give you all the praise and the glory. God, you gave our li- your life for us. May we in return give our lives to you in Jesus' name.